0: Hey, everyone. I'm your host, Andres Sanchez, and this is Sociology Talk. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming back to another episode of Sociology Talk. Um, here we have Dr. Amy Andrada, who is a professor of sociology at Antelope Valley College and research associate with the University of Edinburgh. Uh, thanks for coming, and um, thank you for your time.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thank you for asking me.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so... <laughs> you know, I, I know, and, but this people that are listening to this podcast don't know is that you actually attended Antelope Valley. Did you go to Antelope Valley College?
1: Yeah, I went to Antelope Valley College, um, for my, so I, got, I got my associates at ABC, and then I transferred to CSUB, um, for my bachelor's and for, um, two master's degrees.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And so you came over to, uh, California State University Bakersfield. Yeah. Um, I know I I didn't have this in in the list of questions, but how did you actually find out about that that
1: program? Oh, well, there's a, you know, I I I it took me about ten years to get to, to earn my bachelor's degree because I was a teen parent and mm. I was the first year for first first on, the, on my father's side the first person to go to, to college and the first person to to figure out the, the the university system so I was taking classes little by little by little taking care of my family working full time and um and I was in another career at one point I was in the music industry for a long time mm. and um, we had a recession in 08 and I figured I was like, oh, I should probably, you know, finish my degree instead of just doing one class here. I should really, really invest in my 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 program and and I'll come back to music once I, you know, once I get my bachelor's degree, I'll give it a couple of years. And um I enrolled in CSUB because it was right next to us and it was convenient. Hmm. And I wasn't sure what to major in at first, because I had a letters, arts and science in my associate. And um and I remember taking a sociology class for the first time as an undergrad and being really invested into it, and really interested, but really kind of like wondering what what could this do for me? This sounds interesting, but can I make any money off of it? So, and then I had also studied English literature. So when I came back to, so when I enrolled in, in CSUB and I transferred for my for my bachelor's, I couldn't decide between my majors, so I just did both,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um, I found myself loving each discipline for different reasons. So Mm -hmm. I just continued and got my bachelor's and I wasn't planning to get my master's in anything. And I think the second to last semester, the last semester I was at, I was finishing my bachelor's. I was talking about research with someone who would be soon become my mentor. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, I have a question about this as a research on, you know, and something I, I actually ended up studying for my PhD. And he didn't actually answer my question. He was like, you should probably go to graduate school. I mean, why would I go to graduate school? There's no point. Like he said, like, just, just apply. So I applied and I got in and then I stayed to do my master's and then went on to do another one. So it was just kind of, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I guess it just happened by luck and and mm-hmm. I was in the area and someone encouraged me and someone saw, um, my, my curiosity, and, um, and it gave me an opportunity to be around my child and be invested and be, be present. So for practical reasons and for career choice reasons, I decided to pursue it. So mm-hmm. I, it was really someone else encouraging me, not really me wanting to pursue this. It was just something that happened by accident. In my background, we don't, think about getting degrees that's not for us are, that's for usually for people who have parents invested in their lives not single parents don't get degrees we have to work these are these are luxuries these are privileges to people in our background um so the so the opportunity to pursue it was in front of me and I thought like I, I could manage being present for my child and working and taking my classes and I don't see why I shouldn't do this so it just kind of happened organically it wasn't a goal of mine if I'm going to be quite frank
0: hmm. Yeah. And do you remember what uh, course that was that in sociology or just like kind of sparked your interest?
1: My first course in sociology was an intro course as an undergrad. And I, I it was our, it was at ABC. And I remember mm-hmm. I didn't know what it was going to be about. I rolled in the course with other friends like most most most, most students do. And I remember him talking, the professor talking about um, data and research and really showing how how live research could be and that it could predict um, and, and trajectories in certain groups, looking at the history of groups. And it was the moment I started realizing. I'm like, wait, wait, wait there's, there's like data, people like me, there's, there's theories, there's, wait, wait, you can explain this? Is there's not, it's not just chaotic. And that was the, the first moment I was like, oh, this is really fascinating. Um, but I was also a bit disencouraged because I remember him talking about poverty and me being quite pragmatic and and living in poverty and being like, what is your theory? How is that going to help me? Like, I like, that's not going to do anything for me. So unless you can help me not be poor, like I'm not going to listen to this. (laughs) So I had a very pragmatic approach um, to it, but that's when I first was curious about it and was um, and realized I had always been interested in social sciences. I was always reading Books that were probably way ahead of me. Like I was reading The Media Monopoly at 14 and Karl Marx a bit when I was 15. And I didn't know what these texts were. I just thought they were really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't follow them and so with with really understanding what sociology was about until I was in my master's degree and I had collected my own data and I had presented it. And I realized that there was power in being able to not only have that skill set but when I realized it was really hard to refute someone's position if they had evidence. Hmm. And it was the moment I realized my background no longer was, was predominant. Being a woman was no longer as much of an issue being a minority. Be, you know, it just wasn't, it, it, you could, there wasn't like, like identity politics in the room as at, at the forefront of an argument. It was, this is the data. This is what I found. This is how I collected it. This is the systematic inquiry. You can critique my approach. You may not like my questions, but they're valid. Um, I, I, tr- I did. I, I followed the research process. And if you don't like the research, then you have to contend with that data. Mm-hmm. That's not me. And it was a moment I think I really felt the power of research and that it transcended identity politics. And, and I had never had an experience like that before. And that was the moment I became hooked on sociology. I was like, I'm doing this. This is definitely <laughs> something I'm going to do the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, there's this idea of some people have this idea of free will, where you know it's us yeah. that kind of uh, governs the direction that we go into, and essentially yeah. just on us and what we do. And I'm not saying that that's that's not true, but they yeah. they tend they tend to forget that this, there are social factors, dynamics that occur around right. us that can influence our position and what we mm-hmm. may do, what we may not do, and so yeah. And you had mentioned the research aspect too. I I felt the same way when I got into um, graduate school. I just fell in love with the research process, like mm. just you know, just having these patterns unfold and stuff. It's just so fun, and uh, right. you know, it, I could tell you have a passion for it, and um, yeah, I definitely share that that interest with you when it comes to research and providing the evidence, um, right?
1: And data collection. I that's something I try to relate to students I, when I when I we talk about sociology and it covers quote basically anything um so I often remind them pick a subject you like and there will be research on it there's testimonies there's evidence of experiences there's trajectories we can map out based on historical precedents like you know you have not been unaccounted for and if you could if you could figure out how to find your own answers you can figure out in, in the evidence that exists you can figure out how to map a different trajectory that's the power in that and Um, And it's something I try to relate to my students pick something you actually like. And when you go out and collect data, you realize it's living. It's, reading these are people's lives and testimonies and experiences and they're trusting you with this and it's your responsibility to find what is happening across the room and to show that this isn't that these aren't individualized experiences per se when they happen across a pattern of group of other people and there's something quite powerful about that people realize they're not alone people realize there's evidence of their experiences and then you can take that forward and do something remarkable with it like like challenge policy or, or 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 explore activism or do podcasts and and, and, and explore you know, express the, the, the voice you have from the evidence you pulled from. Mm-hmm. And you're speaking for more than just you in that instance. I think there's just something remarkably powerful about it. So I encourage students to go find something you like, collect data. And then when they come back into the room after they collect the data, they're like, there's so much. And <laughs> I didn't know this was going to happen. And this is difficult. I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> I know, I know right. it is. But it, it then then I think that you realize like, oh, I could do this. Like this isn't, something as removed from me. I can absolutely participate in this. And um and and if i respect the process and 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 work through it and which is difficult work at times there's something rewarding these are skill sets that they can take outside the room it's not just in social sciences learning how to be systematic in your approaches is is, is, is beneficial in all areas of the social life mm-hmm. um it teaches you how to be a better manager in uh it teaches you how to uh, research teaches you how to, how to engage with people that are outside your comfort zone um learning to objectively engage with data really teaches us to even limit our own biases when we're analyzing things and this all these things can help you learning to listen to people better learning to take on new information more effectively and and translating that information for other people so i i I can't Mm -hmm. find anything i don't you know um, from a pedagogical standpoint don't like about the research process and i fully support my students in that in that engagement as troublesome as it may be for them at times
0: yeah Mm -hmm. i totally agree and i think that's really good advice for students. And I got the same advice um, when I was a graduate student. I had an instructor that said, you know, if you're doing research, you want to do it in something that you're passionate about because it's going to be your baby, you know, like yeah. you're going to be will. Uh, building this from the ground up and uh, you're going to be spending a lot of time with it. Great. And so yeah. um, I I did mine on, um, you know, online networks with, uh, okay. with Facebook, why people develop them and stuff like that.
1: Oh, OK, yeah, because
0: yeah, I was really I had a passion for you know. I, I woke up one day and the first thing I did was pick up my smartphone and, and start looking at uh, who's commented or who do I have any notifications. Like, started thinking about like, why did I? Why do I do that? You know, oh, and I'm, okay. I feel like I'm not the only one. And so, oh yeah,
1: of course,
0: yeah. And then, um, you know, the downside and I came up with a lot of interesting stuff, which you can talk about later. But, mm-hmm. um, the only downside of that was that doing research on like technology, it's it's tough because it gets outdated so yeah. fast. You yes. know. Yes, but yes. yeah, I was just but that was I was so passionate about it. And I really yeah. enjoyed the data collection process, talking to people, and just finding these patterns that mm-hmm. occur. And so, and like you mentioned, it's um it, you can market yourself when you have these research skills, you know. Yeah. People want that, they want to yeah. know. Um, you know, they like if they have a product, they want to sell, they want to know what are what do people enjoy about the product? How can we develop yeah. it? How can we make it better? And so that requires some research experience, you know, research tools. So yeah, it definitely is marketable too. Yeah. And um, yeah, so you, you came here, you, you went to school and ABC, CCB you got your master's um, then you decided to pursue a PhD degree. Is that correct? I did.
1: Yes, I did. (laughs) You say so hesitantly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like who does that? Uh, we think that once we get into it and we realize what's happened. Um, yeah, I I I I was going I thought about doing it um, after my first master's because I had done I had participated in an accelerated program. Um, but I, I burnt myself out on my first master's. So I, I took a break for a bit and by break, I mean, I did another master's part-time. <laughs> um, cause that's what we do in academics. We never really leave. <laughs> and I, I, was really de- I, debating, it was in English literature because I wanted to focus on something completely different. And I was debating whether or not I wanted to do my PhD. Did I really want to invest five, six years into a topic? Mm. And did I want it to, to be connected to my previous topic? Was I really as passionate about it? And I'm glad I took a break from my research and focused on a different a different top a, a different set of uh, of, a, of a research topic approach in my in my my English lit degree because it gave me a moment to really think about what I was doing and why I wanted to do it. Um, and then on a whim, I applied to universities. Um, in of course in the U.S., but I, on a whim I applied in the U.K. I had a, a, a professor in my first master's program recommend the University of Edinburgh. And she had attended the University of Edinburgh. And I'm like, why would I, I don't want to live anywhere cold. Why would I want to live there? I don't want to leave Southern California. And I had gotten advice from uh, from another professor at CSUB saying, um, by the way, the the, the, reality, the likelihood of an academic staying in one spot or even staying where they come from is very rare. You're, we're little kind of, we roam around, we're little gypsies. Like you just have to be used to looking for work elsewhere and you pick up your family and you leave all the time. And if you're not open to that reality, then this is not the job for you because you have to go to where the jobs are and not everywhere. Not everyone will specialize in your topic. And he was absolutely a hundred percent. Right. And so I applied in a whim to the UK thinking like, I'm not going to get in. There's no point, blah, blah, blah. And um, I got a lot of feedback from U- particularly the UK. And I applied to the UK in very specific areas in Europe because I wanted the degree to count in the States. Not all of our degrees are transferable back to the States outside because the States have very particular qualifiers, uh, qualifications. And I realized there were a couple in the UK and one in France and one in Germany that would be applicable. And I applied to University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh as one of them. And um, I met my future advisor when I talked to her about my project and she was willing to back me up. And I found another advisor who I only kept for a year but was open to my project as well. And that was one of the biggest hurdles I found in trying to find a PhD program was not only where am I willing to go, but which advisors are willing to work with me on my topic, Mm because then they're going to invest five or six years into this project with me. So that's a big reason why you have to move out, why you have to roam somewhere else, because the likelihood of those things are just going to be really low so on a whim, I applied and I got in and I'm like, oh, now i got to change my whole life. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I went to the, at the University of Edinburgh thinking I have to physically be there for a year. I, I'll give up my life for a year and I'll come back and I'll write my PhD from I'll collect my data, and write my PhD from abroad. Um, but that didn't happen. I, I stayed there for a year. I came back for a year to collect data. And I realized really fast if I'm not in the university I'm not going to participate in the community. I'm going to lose out on a lot of opportunities. Mm. And it was the moment I realized my PhD was me building my portfolio. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I have to do other things. This isn't just about me writing a piece of, a very long piece of paper. I have to like invest in the community. I have to participate in conferences and I have to collect, develop new projects elsewhere. And I have to work with colleagues and I have to roam about. And so the gypsy life just became my existence for six years as I figured out I wanted to do this for a living so yeah sure. I went to the University of Edinburgh and it was it was an interesting experience but I'm so glad that I was asked to come back to the U.S. so that's why I'm back
0: <laughs> yeah um, I had interviewed recently um, one of the instructors at a uh, faculty member at CCB, and he had mentioned uh, the culture shock that he experienced you know he came from Ethiopia to okay. the U.S. and he you know he was like I've read books on you know the United States but so I figured <laughs> I was gonna be fine and he said it was not like that so yeah was there um you know taking or I guess going into a PhD program in a different country was what was that experience um like for you was it different was it hard to adjust in some ways or?
1: Um, I think like most people when they go somewhere else, I went to an English speaking country or or what I thought was one. And because the Scots have a very, very, um, Scotland is a very thick, very thick accent. Um, Like most, people that move, move anywhere, there's an assimilation process for the first year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so mine was kind of on and off because I kept coming back and forth. And then the second year I was collecting data. So I didn't really learn to assimilate to the third year. Um, so it was, I think it was difficult to Clearly, be away from these things that are unspoken in the culture around you—the way people talk, and their um, and their pleasantries towards you, and uh, and the community you feel in certain spaces—that just becomes so automatic that you don't learn to notice it until you're no longer around it. And I have to, you have to learn a new set of rules, a new set of laws. And you think things are going to work the same, but they're not going to work the same. Um, you have to learn a new set of politics, both in the organization, of course, in the political the politics of the state. So you have to learn a new way of life, and mm-hmm. it, and it and it's and it, it is difficult. But if you like being challenged and. And again, in university systems, particularly in graduate programs, you're around other international people because the yeah. likelihood of people pursuing anything at that level is going to be really low. So you to fill up cohorts, you have to bring people from all over the world to do that. So everyone in the room is just like you. Like in the UK, I, I don't. I think I came across one or two British people in a PhD program, which says a lot because I was in a I was in a British university and so everyone in my court for somewhere else, all over Europe, some on Asia, some in South America. So I think for me, I like that being from LA coming being used to being around all these diverse and changing people. And they were going through the simulation process too. Hmm. So those are things I really liked about it, but it was, absolutely difficult understanding scottish culture and british culture (laughs) they're very very conservative very conservative Mm. and um you think americans are conservative in some sections these are conservative (laughs) people but but other things like scots weren't they were very pro-immigration and i would never been in a state that was pro-immigration um pro-diversity or they claim to be diverse i didn't really uh, their version of diversity is ethnic diversity because everyone's white um and my version of diversity is very color very Mm. much colorful um so there are just different things just to get used to um and the weather was horrible i'm not going to even sugarcoat that (laughs) it was absolutely i'm from perfect la's perfect weather i just grew up thinking like everyone was everything was like this and the culture shock i remember um we were landing my because i brought my son we were I, I, I traveled to Europe before, but I had been to the UK, and we were um, landing the first time to in, in Scotland, and I had never been there. So, like an idiot, I chose a degree abroad to a country I've never been. I'm like, oh, it's gonna be fine, and and as we're landing, I'm, I was we were going from, we were, of course, in the sun, and then we we're going through what and what I, I was looking at this layer of gray. And I'm like, what the hell is that stuff? And I realized it was nothing but a cloud, one perpetual cloud that covered the entire sky. And as we broke through the cloud, it was just gray. And I remember having this moment, like what the hell did I just sign up for? I'm going to be here for a year. And I was, it was the moment of dread. It was the worst moment. I, it, The only way I can equate it to something is I imagine this is what people feel like right before they get married at the altar like what the hell did i just sign up for (laughs) like i'm in it i can't turn back now um but so that that was the moment of my culture shock and i'm like this is going to be a hard
0: a hard year Um, yeah yeah i had always uh thought and if we had talked about this before uh, off the podcast but um you know being learning sociology in the united states was i mean it's easy because you can kind of grasp concepts Using examples that we're so used to in the United States. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. But it's
0: like, like, how was that in a different uh, country? Like, were they explaining it in their own context of their own culture and
1: yeah. to
0: figure that out? Or?
1: Yeah. And their approach is 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 different in good and bad ways so in the U.S. we have very structured approaches and I naturally assume there would be structure everywhere else I went mm-hmm. no that no that's not true <laughs> um which gives you a lot of room to be creative and forces you to be creative because then you have to figure out a lot of things are on your own unfortunately if you don't take those types of initiative or don't know how and aren't interested in it you're going to flounder in those spaces so um so for instance like their the textbooks are not a thing in university at, at all in the UK. There's lots of research publications, lots of engagement and discussions, mm. which I thought was a different way of approaching it. I'm like, oh, that's great. You have seminars and you talk about the the, the research you're exploring. But uh, what I thought was kind of lacking in the rooms I was in, I was like, students don't even understand the premise of the argument. Like you're jumping into research and they don't even know what the theories are. Like mm. maybe we, like it was putting the cart from the horse. I felt at times, um, uh, and other times, I thought it was I thought it was quite creative and exploratory. Why don't we jump into the research and jump into the data? But I found like I'll, I found myself often kind of teaching students the basics that they were skipping all the time because mm. the university assumed the students already had it. Mm. Um, so I so some of those kind of teaching inconsistencies. I also saw, I was under the presumption because we have really good focuses on teaching in the UK. Like you have to be, in the US, you have to be very specific, very specialized. I was under the assumption in the UK that professors were going to be good teachers. And (laughs) no, they're good at research. Teaching is an art. And most of them are horrible at teaching. Hmm. And that's an approach that that that's that that's a focus in that country. It's not an issue. You can teach and be an expert. It doesn't mean that you are going to be a good teacher. They don't have an issue with that. In the US, you have to be a good teacher if you're a professor or any other type of educational expert. Um, And knowing a lot about something doesn't mean you know how to teach it. So coming across those different types of setups was definitely interesting Um, and it was much more isolated in the UK um, because it's a very conservative society like whatever figure it out and I that's not only I think a a graduate experience it's experience I saw most students endure and they have really no real interest in figuring out how to manage that it's just Mm -hmm. like well the passing the buck and so being around those cultural approaches, like this is a cultural position that this that like I clearly figured that out like really fast. I'm like, oh, okay. So this is just the approach. Like, either you're gonna sink or swim. It's a very old approach to the academy. You know, do your work, good luck. If not, figure it out, not our problem. Yeah. Um, and it gave me a lot more appreciation for the mentors I had when I was in the US and it gave me a mm-hmm. lot more appreciation and also taught me how to be a better mentor, what I didn't get when, when what I felt I needed from the universities. That I participated in that that I may not have received. So mm-hmm. there, yeah, it, it's always a, it's always a mixed bag. Um, it did teach me to be very proactive, very proactive, and it did teach me a lot of creativity. I had really good advisors, which can make or break your experience as a graduate student, and um, and I have plenty of colleagues who did not have good advisors or didn't feel they're very very supported. So mm-hmm. I know that that made a big difference. And they both did something I think quite remarkable in my experience. They never tried to. Craft my assignment they would always say oh, why don't you think about this why don't you think about this go get quote lost in the woods and i would and i was so used to getting direction that i was forced to be creative and i would come back with something And i remember at the end of my phd they would both say we would give you direction just enough to see what you would do and then when you would come back you would completely blow us out of the water and i thought it was your floundering and they're like, you just blew us of the water because you would you would take it 110 degrees and you mm. really invested in what you were doing. And that's what we want from a PhD. We want you, you're the expert in the topic. We're walking along with you. We can only guide you at this point. So right. um, I, I think that if you, especially as a PhD, I think if you can be creative and allow, there are good mentors that allow you not to get too far lost in your own wilderness, mm-hmm. that it can work for you. So um, I, so it's a mixed bag. I can't give you a straight answer. It's, mm-hmm. there are pros and cons. And I'm sure that there's pros and cons being in, in, in American institutions that, that doesn't, doesn't unfortunately allow for a lot of creativity.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, definitely a different type of culture. It sounds like, I mean, yeah. in terms of, you know, learning and stuff like that. And you had mentioned um, having advisors that would guide you yeah. in in a a direction that you needed to go and you had really good advisors um, and, you know, not being afraid to move and, and go to an advisor or or that, I guess, could help you with your expertise or your topic, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. would would there be any kind of, for somebody that wants to, um, let's say they want to go to Edinburgh and, um, you know, pursue a PhD, what kind of advice would you give them? Would it be um not be af- not be afraid to go out and venture get lost in the woods as you mentioned or
1: yeah um, anything um else? yeah it- So yeah, with PhD programs in general, and it's a consensus I've, I've, heard from many of my colleagues, both in and out of the UK, um, that it's a lot of isolated work. It it just, Mm -hmm. it just is you're with your project. And like you said, it's your baby. So you, you have to sit with it and there's going to be times you don't really want to be around. (laughs) Um, and you have to be willing to explore different ideas and different options. Mm -hmm. And what I think, as an American, what benefited me the most was that in the U.S., we really kind of cultivate this interdisciplinary approach to things like, oh, you know, pop in and out of English, pop in and out of the sciences, work with colleagues across across the aisles and do these types of things. In the U.K., they, they operated as a group of a, a, a collection of islands. So I would find like we would talk about gender research. because I, I I studied research and deviance, gender and deviance. Mm-hmm. And I would find like topics in gender and deviance in the law school but no one in social sciences was talking to the law school about the presentation so Mm -hmm. i would be the only person in social sciences in in anthropology or or in the law school or or in stis um and i would be wondering like well these are topics are clearly cutting across the room so why come everyone else is anything in here and then i realized i'm like oh that's an american approach Mm -hmm. americans are very adamant about finding information and open to take on new information out of in different areas because they're open to being creative and they take initiative. So if you, I, so I would encourage anyone that's going to be in a PhD program, be okay with being isolated, um, be okay with the fact that everyone's going to have a different project than you and be willing to learn from other people and understand if you're in a different area that there's a cultural, that there's a cultural kind of dominance to what's going on and it may or may not fit what you're doing, but you'll definitely learn from those experiences. And mm-hmm. I know I garnered a, a significant appreciation for um for American things on the way back. <laughs> um so I mean I'm not anti UK, but yeah. I, I was just kind of like, oh, well, this isn't efficient. Maybe why do this? It's just the way we do it. And I'm like, But that's not an answer um so um and that's because as an american i think approach we're very neurotic about efficiency we're very adamant about things being clear and structured and Mm. to go to a place where it was like yeah whatever and i'm like oh i don't know if i can handle this much freedom (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah i would recommend be okay with beat alone make sure you really like your project be open to new new ideas. Um, You'll make a wealth of new friends and new opportunities, but you have to be willing to go looking for them because no one's going to help you find them.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting that you're able to kind of look at that. I mean, when they teach or the way that they teach or present material is like, they take it for granted, but you know, you coming from an outside looking in, it's like, Mm -hmm you know, you're able to kind of see those inefficiencies and be like, oh, well, that does not really work. <laughs> or I don't right. really think that works very well. And so, yeah, that's really interesting. And I don't think we paused to talk about uh, the project that you actually were working on. Oh, when you. Yeah.
1: Um, actually, it was a project I was interested in when I first approached my suit my my future advisor for my master's I, he's, it's what he said why don't you go to graduate school so I I ended up studying um uh, over the last 15 years I ended up studying femininity and I when I was I approached my ex-advisor I I told him, I go I really want to know why women undermine other women hmm. and he was like oh okay why and I'm like I, I think they contribute to to the they experience in a, in a very unique way. And I'm not really quite sure if there's research on this. And he was like, Oh, why don't you look into it? And there really wasn't any real research on it. So when I, I I had done something about that, I, I collected a version of that on attitudes about uh, women and partnership status. And I found there was women had more bias towards other women based on partnership status, especially in the context of motherhood and men had less bias. And I was really kind of shocked by that. Mm. I suspected it would be there but I didn't expect it to be significant. And I remember thinking like, oh, there's something here that I need to like dig at. There's something really important here. Um, so I remember I was coming across the notions of f- feminism and women, women's equality, women supporting women. I'm like, but do we always support each other? Or, or it, is that true? And I'm not, I, I just remember being really critical of the feminist argument. So when I went into my PhD program and I approached my advisors, I'm like, oh, this is the kind of one I want, I want to work on. It's kind of a deviant idea, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, all right, why don't you figure out how you're going to go about this and figure out what it is you want to focus on? So I realized in the end, I ended up studying American motherhood because I realized that it it encapsulated the the kind of notions of femininity themselves, partnership, um, and usually the notion, some version of beauty is embedded into it, and of course, motherhood. And once I realized that motherhood was the apex of femininity, that's when I'm like, oh, I have to figure this out. So is a woman still a woman if she's not beautiful? Is she's still worthy of a partner if she's not beautiful? What happens when she's not partnered? What happens when she's not partnered and a mother? So I was asking these kind of questions that challenged femininity. Um, and that's what I did my PhD on. I wanted to look at how American women conceptualize femininity and it's in the body of motherhood. So I ended up studying um, the experiences of single mothers in the middle classes to really challenge the notion that single mothers experience stigma and prejudice because they're poor, and I'm like, well, the research doesn't say most of them are poor. Like two thirds of them are poor. So what do we say about that group then? And privilege, theoretically, should should discourage the likelihood of, of, of you know of, of, of stigma. Um, and and it, it, it's not what happened. It, it it still continued. So I remember being like, oh, okay, I thought that would be there. So I ended up studying middle class women to really dis- disentangle and discount the idea that. Single mothers experience stigma because they're poor. They experience stigma because they're single. Mm. And and the poverty argument is the veiled argument behind that. Like, oh, they're gonna ruin their children. I'm like, but that's what about women who become widows? What about women whose mm. husbands are separated? What about all of them are failed all of a sudden? Like I remember being quite stunned by that. So yeah. I studied I studied American motherhood. That's uh, my research started looking at. Uh, so when I was an undergrad, I looked at beauty constructs and realized beauty was really about learning about controlling women and controlling women's bodies and women contribute to it to gain access to resources. Um, and then when I went into my master's, I was looking at partnership status. Does how does beauty, if the goal of beauty is to get a partner. Then what happens if she doesn't have a partner and how do we interpret her as a woman and I realize there's a lot of these counter arguments that she's untrustworthy and she's sexually pervasive and mm. uh, and elusive and, and all these things that have being untrustworthy. And I realized women supported those arguments. So mm-hmm. along as I was following these threads, I was like, that's weird. Like I thought women were feminists. So I here I am pulling from two different narratives um the research i'm coming across and of course the dominant narrative I'm getting, and then i'm like i'm just going to figure out what the, what makes a woman a woman and i realize, oh all this leads to motherhood so i have to study motherhood and mm-hmm. that's not my that wasn't my purview i didn't come from a background where i was raised by women i didn't i wasn't really interested in women's issues so for me to come into this I, I was really curious about identity like what happens when she's outed what happens when she doesn't like get access to the group like what does she lose and what do her children lose you know, are women really supportive of women? I, I really wanted to understand the feminist argument, so mm. I went into research on that, and I and I worked with an advisor who is an expert of women's studies, and she. I remember her just being like, "That's interesting. This is your argument." I go, "I'm pretty sure this is true, based on the evidence I found," and she was like, "I'll I'll, I'll hear you out. I'll, I'll I'll endorse this. This let's, let's see what <laughs> happens." And they would even me and her would fight at different times about things, and she'd be like, "Amy, I don't know about." why don't you keep be careful about how you approach this you know figure about your framing figure out your wording you know that this is the same audience you're going to give it to these middle-class <laughs> women <laughs> and you're talking about whiteness too and those are the women in the room mm. and you know so she was always kind of guiding me but you know she never said no to anything I ever asked or ever explored or, or the research I was finding she was very mm. open-minded and, and she gave me a great example of the type of feminist that I wanted to be, and and a mentor, and it, it really um, made me g- gave me a lot of belief in the feminist argument. Because here was someone who was willing to hear something about her own group that she didn't like. Yeah. And um, so I ended up studying femininity. That's fundamental American femininity. I know that's so broad, but my my studies went from beauty to partnership to motherhood and i wouldn't have followed that trajectory had i not had support along the way people curious about my ideas and mm-hmm. and the institutions willing to invest in them
0: yeah yeah and so what's i guess sparked that interest into that direction of um uh, femininity um,
1: um my my son okay actually as bizarre as that is um and yeah. So years ago, when my son was very little, as poor as we were, I knew enough to socialize him. I'm like, he has to be in sports. He has to be in activities. He has to be around someone else besides me. I'm going to go insane if I attempt to do this by, by myself with him. And we were, um, I was going from soccer practice to karate practice or to art class. I forget, but I was running him around town. And I realized at the practices he was at, like the little boys weren't playing with him. Like, and I'm like, oh, that's weird. And I noticed one day and then the next meeting and the next meeting and next meeting and I couldn't quite figure this out I'm like oh that's weird like my my son isn't like fugly or anything or like I think he's cute like (laughs) is he socialized well is he not socialized well and and I couldn't figure it out because he had mentioned it to me I am like why don't the little boys play with me I'm like I don't know so I just kept paying attention to it at the time I was working in music and I remember going to the producers and being like yeah, this weird thing keeps happening, blah, 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 blah. And one of them looked at me and he said, are you stupid? I'm like, what? What you, what, what? And he's like, well, who are the people that are there? And I'm like, oh, these are the types of parents that are there, blah, blah, blah. blah. And he just nodded his head. He's like, you're the problem. I mean, like, what do you mean? Hmm. He's like, you're the only single woman, right? I go, well, yeah, that has nothing to do with anything though. He's like, that has everything to do with everything. Like you're the problem. You're the only single woman there. So I bet you anything that this has to do with the parents not letting them your kid play with their kid I bet you anything has everything to do with you it has nothing to do with the kid it has to do with you and then I started noticing things along that line like um when I would drop him off like, when I'd be in karate tired and exhausted in the background women would like randomly come up to me and be like you know start a conversation and it would always ask me about my husband Oh, what would he do? Um, And I, I, and this is after I had this conversation with with this, with this coworker, and I started being like, "Oh, he, you know, he doesn't, he's, he's out of town right now," and I started acting as if I was in a partnership, and then I realized that the invitations for like sleepovers and 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 started increasing once i presented myself as if i was Mm partnered and that's the moment i started thinking like there's something here this is weird and i don't know what this is and i have to and i it it would never it never left me my son was like five or six at the time he's 18 now Mm -hmm. so i was like i remember just being mad about it like what like my kid can't play with you because I'm not partnered. partner. Like, I was so upset about it. Like, mm-hmm. I was like, you're going to deny my baby something? Like, I was just so aggravated about it. So I, um, from that point on, I used to wear like, a crackerjack ring on my finger and I would just go to the practices and, and <laughs> he never got denied anything after that. And that's wow. when I was like, this is, this is, this is significant. This to me, yeah. this is significant. And then I looked into, into my research. I'm like, oh, this is bigger than me. This is way bigger than me. Um, and of course in a PhD, you know, everything blows up. So so it started something small. My, my son just asked me, mommy, why don't the little boys play with me? And I
0: tried
1: to answer it. That's
0: all. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, just, it all starts with our own personal experience. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of just what sometimes what motivates us to just really dive into some type of research or um, some area of expertise. Um, I mean, that's a lot of the times when I talk to people on this podcast, it's, Something comes about because something happened to them, yeah. or there's an experience that they had that you know shed light on something, a social issue, you know, and so
1: right,
0: yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah. um, so you you um you went to University of Edinburgh, and then you yeah. came back to the United States, yeah. And so um you're now a professor of sociology, Antelope Valley College. College,
1: yep, yep,
0: yeah, and you're um. And let's see, can you tell us a little bit about what it's like being a faculty member on ABC? What do you enjoy about your job, maybe?
1: So I've been at um, ABC for over 10 years and um, probably longer <laughs> And um, so I'm familiar with the department, and I'm familiar with kind of how it works. Um, but to be there full time, it was just because I, I. So my experience is slightly different. The faculty already knew me, hmm. so when I got hired full time, they very lovingly were were receptive of me, and oh, you should have been full time years ago, Amy. <laughs> Remember, you know, so I had I think my experience was quite unique in that way. I wasn't worried about whether or not I was going to find colleagues to get along with, and whether or not I was going to be able to understand the workings of the department like i i I understand most of it um some of the more uh, full time things are new to me of course, but I have a mentor who I've known for who I've worked with for years so um it's been it's it's been as 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 a blessing in the way that it's been an easy segue from one thing to another so um yeah, working with the faculty is like working with a family. I never knew yeah. that I always liked so, <laughs> so it, it's been quite, quite great and welcoming and warm. And I, I definitely um, have missed that. Being mm-hmm. working at the different universities I've worked at, um, and and the culture being quite removed and conservative. Um, to coming back to the US and coming back particularly to social sciences because these people are curious about people and are interested in people and are genuinely invested in their communities because of their focuses so to be around a network of people who have the same focus as I do it it just it feels like a little home and I I'm quite blessed and that's what it feels like to be back and working at ABC.
0: Yeah it must feel better than the the periods of isolation. Yeah. To,
1: it, oh no, it definitely did. PhD it. De- it def- yeah. It, I'm glad I'm around people. I, I. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're a PhD program, one of the negative things no one tells you is that you turn into a troll in your <laughs> writing period. Because you know you don't bathe every day. Because you get so overwhelmed <laughs> with your work, you don't brush your teeth every day. You forget <laughs> to eat because you're at your desk yeah. for 12 hours. So. Um, Being around people has been lovely. Being in the sun has been lovely, you know, talking, having random conversation, developing weak ties with people that are meeting, Mm -hmm. you know, these are all the things I missed in in the the physical environment of working in a department. So um, that's been that's been quite lovely to participate again and again.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And what would you say would be the challenges of what you what you currently do?
1: So, um, because it's maybe, because it's a college, it's, it's, it's a hundred percent teaching focus, which is fine. I, I love teaching. Um, but it also means that the other focuses I had, the, the research projects don't get enough attention. And I genuinely love doing research. I genuinely love getting lost in the literature and going through the data and analyzing. And I, I definitely love, I, de- I definitely love being part of a research project and being part of a research team, like us exploring the data together, figuring out what we're, what our analyses mean, um, making sure we're all on the same page, someone else double checking what you're doing. So I, I do miss um, the creativity aspect that comes from the research that I have to kind of now dip into in the winters and most likely the summers now. Um, but I, uh, and so balancing the research and the teaching is difficult. And of course, there's other things outside of research mm-hmm. and teaching. There's the public engagement acts, uh, process, which is kind of, which is more importantly, you know, this is a version of what you're doing. Um, so I do public lectures and, um, I, I do educate, I go to schools and do it and do education on basically girl bullying. So a lot mm. of my research is kind of folded into that. Mm. Um, and I'm working on different projects. That I just don't have a lot of time for outside of specific research publication and, and, um, in my teaching. So balancing it is quite difficult. And a lot of the work we do is unpaid. So until mm. something unless we get funding or, which is never enough, um, so that's, that's probably the most difficult thing to do. And my, and um, because we have so much on our plate, I can't be as present for as many students as I want, mm-hmm. because I have to balance all of my responsibilities. So it, it just, um, I would rather... I would rather have this type of overwhelming than the PhD overwhelming. If I'm going to be <laughs> frank with you, yeah. But it's just trying to balance it all, um, making sure I'm participating in my community, making sure I'm part of my research projects, and I'm and I'm equally involved with the teams I work with, and making sure I'm fully present for my students when I'm there. And it all requires just a, just a significant amount of energy. But it's all remarkably rewarding. I do enjoy I do enjoy my job, and I'm very lucky to be doing what I do
0: hmm Yeah. And I'm sure the community appreciates what you do and all the hard work that you put into we'll human. see.
1: We'll see, we'll, we'll see. I get a random comment. Who did she think she is? So, yeah,
0: whatever. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. I've experienced those kind of
1: yeah.
0: situations. It makes you want to go back in isolation.
1: <laughs> no, I used to have an invite. one of my advisors, you know, student eval or like you know, yeah. the, you know, in a conference, someone says random it has nothing to do with what you're talking about. And, and I'd be, and I would remember going up to be like, what do people do this? He'd be like, oh, it's your unhappy customer in the room. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he'd be like, it's your unhappy customer. I mean, like, what does that have to do with the And he's like, if it was hundred percent, like, it, wouldn't it be trustworthy, right? You know, mm-hmm. stats, you can't have perfects. I go, yeah. And he's like, just appreciate the unhappy customer in the room. They emphasize everyone else that's happy. And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, that's a good, I didn't, I never thought about it before he said that. And I'm like, all right. So as long as they have a couple, I'm okay with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're always going to have somebody that's, you know, that's going to be bad reviews, but, you know, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, um, you, you'll you have like several other ones that are, you know, raving about you and, you know, saying yeah. how great of a teacher you are. And so, yeah. so
1: everyone needs to troll, Andres. Everyone yeah. needs it. <laughs> Every time I get one, I want to get, I get like a little tear and I'm like, I know who it is, but I'm so touched. You put so much effort into hating this moment. Like, okay, whatever.
0: Yeah. They really need to rate my student.
1: I you know what years ago I would tell my colleagues this I'm like do you think we should they're like Amy you're gonna get sued if you do that and I'm like they're like kind of pedagogical standpoint that defeats the purpose they get a grade I'm like but you know grade isn't everything you know that you know that and they're like, like Amy don't don't just don't
0: <laughs> so speaking um, about students let's say there was a student that was preparing to take your course um, what kind of advice would you give them? Um, you know, if you were to, you know, if if they're listening in, I guess.
1: <laughs> okay. Um. Uh. Oh, come with an open mind. Um. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of uh, uh, research and evidence about people in your exact position that's worthy of exploration, and, and I think that is really powerful for students in reminding themselves that they're not alone in their position. I find a lot of students feel like they're overwhelmed and lonely and no one understands what they've been through. And I'm like, I I bet you anything there's research on this topic. And Mm -hmm. there's testimony in that, in that position. And um, so I would encourage students to come with an open mind that there is research and testimony of people like you, and it's worth your, your time to invest in it. Be willing to learn from others, Um, be willing to commit yourself to new ideas. Um, And I I rarely talk about things that students don't already have an awareness of. I always tell students there are many sociologists before they come in the room. I'm like, you obviously have a family. We're going to talk about family. You obviously understand politics, some form of politics. We're going to talk about politics. And all I'm going to ask you to do is think about these, these dots in a different order. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Just be open to a new idea and you'll enjoy the course. There's no way you won't find something you won't like.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that's good advice. I mean, um, I've, had students that come into the course and we do talk about certain touchy things, you know, like, yeah, uh, like race, you know, and I've, I've had students just get up and walk out because they, they can't really understand that, you know, there's a view that could challenge what you have internalized Mm -hmm. and believe. Yeah. And to be open-minded about that means to listen and including listening to other experiences that aren't ours. You yeah, know, like, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important for students to know um, that your views, your beliefs could be challenged.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> to, it's healthy.
0: Yeah. And to to keep that in mind and see, okay, um, I don't agree with that. Why don't you agree with it? Are there certain things that they said, or certain evidence that you could bring to the table that may counter that argument? Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of goes back to your your research and data and exploration and and facts and evidence and just to know be open to other ideas and other beliefs and the opposing side and so I think that's really important to know because some of us I mean a lot of us just come into um we, we come into we're born into a social position.
1: Mm-hmm. We
0: learn things within that social location. Right. And then we enter into other institutions that may challenge those beliefs that we've internalized Yeah, growing up. And so um, I've had similar experiences. I mean, I used to believe one thing and then I was introduced to something else, somebody else's experiences that are not mine, but by mm-hmm. listening to them and yeah. understanding their experiences and what they go through and um how may i may take things for granted i mean you had mentioned femininity yeah. um you know when i i teach uh gender society and so i come to i take things for granted by being a man you mm-hmm. know there are things mm-hmm. that i don't see certain privileges that i have mm-hmm. being a man mm-hmm. um and it's up to me to listen to those stories those experiences that women have
1: mm-hmm. that aren't
0: mine they're they're not my experiences but mm-hmm. only the way to understand them is to listen. And so, right. yeah, I think that's a really good, um, it's really good advice. And so it,
1: it, it sounds easy, but it's actually quite difficult. Yeah. Um, and I applaud the students who come in and I do tell them, I go, we're going to talk about things, you know, we're going to talk about things you may not like, I'll, but I will always bring evidence for the claims I have. And I'm more than happy to hear you out, but please bring evidence so yeah. we can look at it together. I may be wrong. A low probability, but I may be, (laughs) I may be wrong. Um, and I'm happy to explore that with you. And if there's Mm -hmm. something we're talking about that you're unsure about, please research it and that could be your project. I'm happy to help you figure that out. Right. Um, but come in the room with an open mind. And sometimes, of course, there's frustrations and I tell them, if you if there's something that you feel like you need to express and you you don't know how to express it in in a conducive way, take a step outside and I'll talk to you about it. And we could talk about how you can express it in a way that mm-hmm. helps you participate in the room in another way, but your voice is necessary. Everyone's voice is necessary then, but listening is really, is probably the most important tool you're going to learn to develop. And it's difficult learning, coming across research that confronts you mm-hmm. is, is always difficult. And there, I haven't met a researcher that hasn't had a moment where they it'd been like, oh, I was, I was but wrong about this. And mm-hmm. I, I had no idea until I sat with it. And everyone has this moment, like someone said this, or I was in this, or I sat with the data, this, or this, and I had no idea that it existed. Mm-hmm. And that, and that is uh, to me, the, the most important thing about learning is, is the listening component and being willing to confront that moment and not veer away from it. That's the sign of a real, of a learner. And to me, that's a, that's a significant strength.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it's awesome advice. And so, yeah, I want to thank you for coming back uh, or coming yeah. to, on the show. It, it'd be awesome to really dig into the specific research that you do in femininity. I'd uh, love to have you back on. And, yeah, uh, please
1: do. I'm, ha- I'm happy to do. I'm doing several projects, um, a book a book proposal, and I'm de- and developing a book proposal from a lecture series that I've been doing. And um anti bullying campaigns and helping women and and, and um uh, teachers and or and um and act and organizers like school organizers and counselors I learned to identify this in young women helping mm-hmm. parents figure this out so yeah, I'm happy by all means let me know if you want me to pop by I'm happy to
0: yeah, you got it and thank you for you know the time that you give you gave to this podcast. I know that there's a lot on your plates and uh you know as you know all faculty experience there's a lot on our plates and just really appreciate you giving your time to you know, the podcast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it, Andres.
0: You got it. Take care.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Sociology Talk. For more stories about sociologists, please subscribe and check out my other episodes. Take care.